everyone welcome to another episode of poetry says recently i got the chance to talk to ra villanueva who is a poet who was born in new jersey he now lives here in london and i first saw him at the poetry and politics forum where i met sophie mayer who we chatted to a few weeks ago and we caught up after seeing national poetry day live readings at South Bank Centre. So in the background here at the start, you can hear some little kitties running around because we're just outside the Saison Poetry Library and they've got this really cool kids poetry reading area. So they're around for a bit. They do head off after a while. Um, so skip forward if they're starting to irritate you. Um, so about Ron, he is the author of Reliquaria from 2014, published by University of Nebraska Press, and that won the Prairie Schooner Book Prize in Poetry. And this chat was just so fantastic. It touched on so many things that I've been wondering about and thinking about lately. We talked about slam, we talked about writing myths, we talked about becoming a writer, and we talked a lot about race in poetry and in the world of writing and literature. Um, to do that, we talk a little bit about his poem, Aftermaths, which you can hear the full reading of um, from my link in the show notes. And we also dig really deeply into a poem by Jack Gilbert called A Brief for the Defense. And I think we do it with love, but we really challenge this poem. So brace yourself for that. So. Yeah, this is Ron. I'm excited for you to meet him. And I start out by asking him how he cut his teeth in the world of poetry. So I grew up in Jersey and um, I, I always had thought that I was going to do something with English or with literature since I was in high school. But it was always subordinate to wanting to be a doctor. And it wasn't until undergrad that I had this kind of strange flash epiphany thing that the moral implications of having someone die on the operating table would just be too much for me. And so I very quickly shifted my discipline, on paper at least, to, to just to to literature. I took off the, I was double majoring in biology and, and English at the time. Um, and I don't think I ever really lost um, that biology part though. That's always a part of it. And so cutting my teeth, I don't know, I think I first started going to readings when I was at Rutgers, is the name of the university at, at Rutgers, um, going to slams, going to spoken word events. Before that, all of my, my entire relationship with, with with poems were, were, were dead people, really, or things that I was supposed to write essays on or to analyze for, or to, for syllabic counts. And, and the genius of all, of all that technical, architectural, structural stuff, and which I loved doing. I still love doing. But it wasn't until Rutgers where I, I was able to the great gift of just watching people actually memorize poems and not be graded on them. Just like, we used to have this thing, um, it would bounce from house to house around campus. They, uh, a group of, a group of, of 
poets, they called themselves verbal mayhem. And we would sit, we would sit in, in, in living rooms all around Rutgers. And it would be almost like a, I don't know, like a, it was almost vaudeville. It was like, you know, there would be three hosts, but there were no mics. It was just kind of like on the carpet. We all gather around and they'd read and then someone would sing a song and then someone would collaborate and someone would freestyle. I don't even remember how I got involved in it. I don't remember how I was invited to this thing. I don't have, I have no idea. But I, re I remember that every Tuesday and Thursday night, Tuesday or Thursday, that's what we circulated, I was there. From a certain point in my life, I just can't remember not being at these things. And it was, it was so shocking to me, like that there were, there were people that looked like me, people who didn't look like me, people who were my age, who were writing and memorizing, um, poems and I think that much to my at times much to my like sadness I, I, I could never memorize or perform in the kinetic way that they would um, or write about the things that they that they that they wrote about but I always was was there I wanted to I always wanted to kind of learn it was like a lecture space to me um, and I think from there it became trying it out and like reading some poems, um, being the sacrificial goat at slams, but never having the guts to slam myself. Um, in what way were you the sacrificial goat? Oh, so this is tradition in slam where um, slam is kind of competitive battle poetry, right? And so uh, in, the, in the idealistically and beautifully democratic way that it is, the judges are picked randomly from the audience. And there's a scale from one to ten. They they judge the poem from one to ten. To calibrate those judges, they have what they call a sacrificial goat who goes up first. And so, you know, he or she gets up there and they read a poem, and then they get, you know, they get they're just kind of cal so that from that point on, all the other poems are kind of judged up against, in holistically against that somehow. Yeah. No, it's it was it was it was I mean. No, it wasn't negative at all. It's just like, I mean, that's the that's the that's the nature of, of the game. I mean, it's it's it, it's a the thing that slam taught me. Even though I never actually slammed, was it taught me play? It taught me to not take. I still do, but not to, to not try to not take the act of writing so seriously. Um, you know, because my experience with poetry before that was just like people like in a room, just like. You know, like Rodin's thinker, just thinking and contemplating the universe, and then, oh, here, are a thousand sonnets, and that, and then, sometime, seven hundred years from now, someone is going to study that, and that's what makes the poem good. That's what makes the thing worthwhile. Is that somehow some stranger is going to unearth this thing, unpack it like an archaeologist or a paleontologist, and then that's that's greatness, you know. But going to slams, um, and watching this scoring happen, and. Sometimes it was intense, sometimes it was lighthearted, sometimes it was, uh, for the people who were something ego-crushing, something completely, like, validating. Um, it instantly transmuted my sense of, like, what poetry could do. And so, so much of what they were talking about was contemporary. The poems were ostensibly political. They were 
ranting against the president. They were ranting against surveillance. They were ranting against lack of funding for the arts or school. A lot of us were, um, at that point in my life, I had started to uh, go to graduate school for education. So a lot of us were teachers and were dealing with funding cuts and differences in philosophy, the kind of quantification of education as opposed to like what we, why we entered into the field in the first place. So SLAM gave me a lot, even though I would never, I don't think anyone would call me and I don't think I would call myself someone who's a SLAM poet. I was, it gave me so much in the way of, um, I don't know, just the, the, the broad, wide roving sort of glory of like how many different multitudes of poem could, could, all the different ways a poem could work and what it could do for us. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, and, and I, I keep thinking about this phrase, cut your teeth. I don't know where I cut my teeth. I think I just, I think it was just like going to lots and lots of events, spending hours as we're today, just going to readings, just sitting in the audience and just stealing words and taking things down. And then we'd have phones, but you know, like on, on paper and, and just having scraps everywhere. And then um, I taught high school after that. And so I kind of came back to the classroom. I was on the other side of the desk. And I started realizing that my relationship with poetry, I was a nerd, I was a geek. I, I, told, I, I loved being lectured to, and I loved just sitting there just by osmosis, just hearing everything. But that's not what my students, that's not what benefited them. There's no, there wasn't entirely consistent virtue in that for them. So SLAM also gave me the ability to think like, oh, here are people who are writing now who are doing these things as well, and so, I was in the classroom giving my students contemporary poetry to help them better understand Catch in the Rye or Lord of the Flies or Macbeth. And that became a whole solar system of, of, of different kinds of poems. And along the line, someone had suggested I start writing for myself. I, don't really, I didn't really write for myself. I, I, I just read lots of other people's work. I started taking um, workshops and someone kind of suggested, but also dared me to apply for po a poetry program, a master's program. Uh, and um, I, I only applied to one, because I, I, I love my job. I thought, if the universe says no to this, that's fine. I could stay in the classroom for the rest of my life and do this thing. Um, and I got in, and that <laughs> changed everything again. And so then I mo we moved to New York. Um, and I was in a poetry MFA program all of a sudden with people who, um, as I keep saying, I, I didn't really read contemporary work very much. So there were all the, the faculty members, I realize now, are important for all of these reasons. And I had no idea who they were. I'd never read them before. And other people were fighting over classes, and I'd be like, I don't know, I never read this person before. And I would just sign up because I'd hear, I'd read a couple of things, I'd apologize, like, oh, I like, I, he's a painter, I'd love to work for him, uh, work with him, and uh, she writes these poems about the body, and I'm really fascinated by that, and I'll work with her, and next thing I know, it's like, oh, shit. You're, this is this person. No, oh, wow, wow, and, um, yeah. So it feels like, in, in re retelling my origin myth to you, it feels like a lot of, like, these accidental encounters with, with um, these accidental encounters, but all the time there's this undercurrent of, of poetry always flaring up somehow and saying and, and, and giving me entry into these little universes that have now become this, whatever you want to call this universe. Yeah. yeah. No, but it's really, I think 
that's a really valuable story for people to hear because the, I think the reason that I use the phrase cut your teeth is that I buy into this myth of the intentional mm. poet who comes out of the womb and is like, I'm going to be. No. And no. Uh, it's just not like that for yeah. everyone. It doesn't have to be. And if it's not like that for you, that's also. Yeah, I had this conversation this morning with, with one of my students now, and and she seems a bit um, tentative about being in class with people who identify as, as writers and who are saying things like, um, everyone's having a very similar experience of, of, of writing new work and reading new work and um, encountering things they've never done before, which is very important to me. And someone else had said that had, had said some phrase like well when I was doing my BA we didn't read anything like this and that's why I'm excited by um, you know reading these American poets and so this other student was just like I didn't I didn't do my BA in poetry yeah you know I didn't and so I, I, I feel like I'm I'm already on the outskirts of, of already like four years behind right and I, I had to really reassure her that there isn't only one entry point into this particular um, furnace of poem making or poem reading that we're going to spend the semester in. And I don't know if she buys it yet. I don't know if she believes me entirely, because of course, of course, the game of school as well. Like, there's a sense of like I'm going to be assessed for these poems. I don't. Um, which is a whole different issue with the nature of creative writing programs. And, and but that being said. It's it for me. It wasn't intentional, and I, I think for many of my, my my friends, what is maybe intentional now in terms of like, oh, this is where I send my work to, or I'm intentional about like I care about my craft. I want I want to participate in these festivals or in this event. Like it's maybe intentional now, but the as I call it, sort of a comic book thing. Like our origin myths don't have us, you know, at sixteen trying to be Shakespeare. Yeah. You know, although that seems like the arc that it just sort of happens yeah. it's actually it's really accidental and it, it's a lot of it is chance um, there's a there's a there's a, a writer named Steven Johnson who he's, a, he's kind of like a science writer he's an essayist he, um, he's got a, a book called the invention of air that's really just fantastic about um, reconceptualizing this reconceptualizing of like how we understand empty space that there's actually oxygen here and that's a concept that seems really easy for us in 2016 to understand but in the 18th century that was you know, this is empty not populated by molecules of oxygen and nitrogen and uh, he talks about in that book how coffee shops are what does he call them like like laboratories or engines of an innovation because you have all of these people when coffee came into trade people weren't drunk all the time because alcohol is, is safer to drink than water when there's cholera everywhere. They didn't even know that was how it worked. They just knew that water was unsafe to drink. But when coffee was, in, was brought into um, enlightenment communities, they were actually awake as opposed to wasted at 10 a.m. <laughs> and they actually started exchanging ideas. And, um, and he says that uh, many times we imagine innovation to happen with just these these it's a burst of inspiration and you just figure it out. But a lot of, they're all accidents. Mm. A lot of these things are accidental discoveries. You're, you're, you're trying to isolate one element and then you discover radiation and then 
you've got to deal with cancer and so you, there's another treatment that comes all of that is like linked yeah, yeah. Um, and the conversations that happen are also yeah completely vital yeah and i bring that up because it, it's like uh, ultimately he comes to this uh suggestion that so much is there that is chance but chance favors the connected mind like if your if your brain or your life is somehow primed for those those moments when chance starts to works its 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 randomness its absurdity on it then something can happen if, if but if you haven't read those books or seen those um, performances you never have the chance for that phrase that someone says to like link with a poem that you've been struggling with for five years you know like you need I, I think about that line quite a bit like if the more that that you that one goes to things the more that you are somehow s setting the stage for something you don't know if it's ever gonna happen you don't know if it's you don't know you know chance yeah. favors the connected mind I just think about that a lot Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you hmm. a slightly um, curly question yeah. now. Curly? A curly question. Yeah. That's what we say in Oz. <laughs> um, so I, I kind of have this idea that being part of these two communities, uh, these two poetic communities, you're connected into some conversations that maybe sometimes butt heads, and I'm mm. interested in whether you notice conversations that are off limits mm. either in the US or in the UK or perhaps even both mm. um, maybe it's not something that maybe it's a conversation that was off limits and is now okay to talk about right. is there anything that comes to mind the first thing that comes to mind is race right. I think race is, is the, to that question um, race and, and the politics of race the politics of of um, social constructions of gender I think are those topics, which are which are interlocking in in in, in many 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 ways, uh, are handled. It seems to me differently in each of the cultures. Um, which is to say, I think I don't want to say that either way is better, but certainly in the U.S., I feel like there is a volume that you start at. Like you begin at a place already that's already um, amplified. Whereas here, I think there's still a sense that um, to raise those things feels like it's there's impropriety or um, we we sh maybe that shouldn't be said about or that, that or that doesn't happen here. Maybe that happens in America. There's a kind of sense like it doesn't happen in a, that doesn't happen here. It's more over there. Um, and there are reasons for that in terms of like the visibility of police shootings and the treatment of, of black Americans um, in the U.S. and how visible that and how even The Guardian is one that's counting those shootings in a way that American media doesn't. It takes, it takes sometimes the, the outsider to, to illuminate the horror <laughs> or, or, or the issue, the, the dilemma. Um, and... Uh, I mean, there's a ferocity. I think that's the word I often use. Um, a ferocity to 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 how Americans are have to have to navigate and are weighed down by, but are also um, made whole by who they are racially. Um, 
even the sense that I can say I'm Filipino American and and and, and I understand on my own terms, and maybe other people from the U.S. would understand it as well. Like the negotiation of that of that, it's not a binary to me. There's a there's a kind of continuum of moments where I feel more Filipino and moments where I feel like my accent labels me as American or the way that I write. Um, today, today downstairs was one of the first times that when I heard Indigo say like she's she's um, Nigerian British. That's one of the first times I've ever heard anyone identify that way. Um, I can't recall if Inua identifies that way, um, but it's and, and as it as it happened and as it happens now, I, I wonder like why haven't I noticed that? I've always thought to myself that that hyphenation is a distinctly, uniquely American phenomena. I sort of have lived the past couple of years thinking like that's just one of the things that we do, um, and it's a it's a problematic thing, but it's also. What, what we say you can, you're Italian American Irish American Indian American Filipino American but that was the first time I've heard someone call herself I think I've read it places but maybe not at the mic um, but it sure as hell is changing here in the past couple of years that the conversation has become louder um, I notice it I notice it in the way that elements of, of the old guard which is a which is a way of saying um the press that w would favor sort of the normalization of white as the literature of Britain. That's what I'm trying to say yeah. in a euphemistic way. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, the way that they respond to the fact that Claudia Rankin won the, the Ford last year or that Vani Kapaldeo won it this year and um, Sarah Howe won the T.S. Eliot. All those things, the response in the press of, of, of saying that, oh, the only reason that these women won those prizes was because they're women of color is on its, in every form, racist. And I think it's been so heartening to watch people scream that. Uh, you know, poets on Twitter, poets in, on, in The Guardian, Selena Gondon wrote a beautiful essay in, in The Guardian about it. Um, anthologies like The Good Immigrant, which in some way are, are, are addressing this, that, that to write, to create as a person of color in Britain is to immediately be seen as suspect. Like, well, why did you get published? Or to have to prove yourself perpetually. Yeah. But that is also the case in some ways in the US. Um, and, when, and when that happens, it gets called out, I think, for the most part. Um, it surprised me and heartened me and that people got just fucking loud about it here. It was so great to see. The people getting called out and, and saying this is wrong, this is racist, and so kind of circling back to the start of the question, I think when I first moved here, that's one thing I noticed: the difference in 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 boldness, at least in terms of with race. Um, but I can already see shifts in that. I think. Um, it feels like a conversation that is moving faster than a lot of people can keep up with. Uh, a lot of the, the old guard. And it's a conversation that's been happening. It's always it's always been present. It's always this is something that writers of color, artists of color, immigrants, um, anyone who's been marginalized or seen as other, we've always they've always been talking about this. Um, 
people don't listen and uh, or, or conveniently close their eyes and ears off to it. There's a convenience to say like, oh, that's not happening. Or, you're, you're overreacting. But I think there's, there's, there's a... Um, there is a fire, a necessary fire that, that's happening here that I feel lucky to have seen stoked, yeah. right? Um, so I don't know if that, that's a kind of convoluted answer to your, to your question, but it's the first thing that, that comes to my mind and to my heart is, is the way that people deal with race and deal with um, otherness. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it completely came to my mind as well. It's very much exciting to feel that fire building and building and the conversation getting louder and louder to the point where people just there's no longer the capacity to close your eyes to it and just look the other way and be like, oh, you're overreacting. It's just not an option. It's not an option. Yeah, yeah. and I think that this this phrase of like um, there there is a kind of now, there, are, there are a family of phrases. Uh, you're overreacting, or why... Don't take it so seriously. Or, oh, they were just joking. Or, I don't know, and, and things of that sort. The, the, the pernicious thing about those phrases is that it puts, it, it puts the onus of forgiveness back on the person who has, who has been hurt. Right. And... Uh, but it, that's such a thing that we've internalized, that we've all become complicit in. You know that that it takes a lot to shine the light on how insidious those phrases are. Oh, he was only joking, or get a sense of humor. It's not you know, people are so thin-skinned these days. Yeah. Like, this has always been happening. It's just that oh, it's not being so politically correct. Like these these are these are phrases that are invented to. Um, to absolve the person who has who has committed the harm, and it's and it's important and vital, and has been I think whether whatever culture you're in to to call that out and to say, no 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 no, no. it's just not funny. It's not funny. <laughs> it's not funny. Or these or that these things matter. Yeah. Um, um, yeah. Here, like you know, my last name is perpetually misspelled or. Uh, mispronounced and those things seem like small things but they are a pattern of things that have happened to me my whole life you know and that's my name you know that's that's my father's name that's my mother's name's grandfather and on and on and on so those 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 things um, mean something to me and so what seems to be a simple transposition of letters and then a mispronouncing of a name somewhere else uh, there's there's it's not. It's not a small deal to me. No. Right. And so I think those are. That's kind of one of those examples of like if you if you raise that question, like, can you just get my name right? Like, oh, he's he's so sensitive about it. Like, why are you so sensitive? Like, it, then it comes back onto me to forgive you for not doing some some basic ass research <laughs> and practicing in the mirror or something. So, and that's. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a, or just simply being asking how to pronounce it. Like those are very s- small but important yeah. things, and they're actually, when you think about it, not very small. And I, I um, but those are things that that many 
people have had to deal with. Uh, and I, I, I'm, yeah, I think it's good that we're actually speaking up about it. Yeah, yeah, completely. When you were talking about that, it sort of struck me that in, in the work of yours that I've read, mm -hmm. that you seem to really deftly walk this line between doing that kind of serious uh, naming and calling out, but that it's not, um, I can't quite think of the word, but there is a levity there, there is a lightness. Um, do you mind if I read the line? Sure, <laughs> please. There's one line in particular from your poem, Aftermaths, which I saw you read, it just <laughs> absolutely floored me, absolutely floored me. Um, there's a line here, it says, so it's a, it's a post 9-11 poem, uh, it says, fuck remembering their way, if we let them, soon all will have left your anthems, this looping montage of eagles and bugles and smoke. Mm. So good. Um, but there's a lightness there, there's kind of a sense of the ridiculousness of the eagles and bugles mm. and smoke, and I think, yeah, in the poems of yours that, that I've read, it's, um, yeah, there's a balance, for lack of a better word, I'm but you, do you see what I'm getting at? I guess I do. It's so funny to me because I always worry about um, my poems being too dense and too self-serious and overwrought. That that's 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 perpetually my my fear. I would never have said that. Well, that's I appreciate that. <laughs> but I mean that, that's perpetually my fear. I think just simply because I know on some level, how much I love language that is, is not commonplace. You know, strange Latin adverbs and terms from art history or paleontology or uh, Latin or something. You know, the, all these phrases that are, that are um, really esoteric or, or, or it can come off like, I don't know, I always worry about, about the poems seeming to be kind of a condescending persona. And this notion of like, the notion of like levity or humor, one of the things that has, has always shocked me is when I read, people will laugh at lines that are not intended to be funny. Yeah, yeah. Um, that to me are meditative or like deeply anxiety laden. Like that phrase, that, that, those lines that you read, to me, are, I, I can remember writing them um, by hand and then typing them out and just like, sighing because yeah. I could it was 2011 so it was 10 years after 9-11 and that was the um, occasion for that poem it was, it was uh, we wouldn't call it a commission but it was a project sort of in in the shadow of, of this this kind of grim anniversary um, and I remember just thinking about the imagery that's that was on television at that at that decade mark and also the the days after 9/11, um, when I was in I was in New Jersey and I was in New York, and and um, my brother lived a a block from Ground Zero, from the World Trade Center, and so he, you know he is he he woke up to the sound of particulate matter and bone against his window, you know, and so that poem to me is the furthest thing from having any kind of levity or light, and yet as you read it like I hear it like it's so absurd I like, hope it's not annoying I no no it's not annoying at all it's not annoying at all it's 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 such a <coughs> it's such a it's such a, a, a compliment it's so it's so validating to hear someone pay attention to the lines but it, it's like that's a particular brand of American um, 
Well, it's an exceptional thing, to use uh, to repurpose that phrase. The exceptional thing is that I think we sell ourselves, um, we, we get punch drunk on this image of, of our country being somehow different or exempt from the kinds of propaganda that power all countries and all nations. And it's become kind of a joke with like America and, and you know, <laughs> eagles and bugles and, but you know, we, we get, it's intoxicating, you know, it's, in, it's absolutely intoxicating. Um, and I think that that phrase to me is, is, is it's, it's absurd, but that's what we turn to. And at these moments of great crisis, they give us comfort. And, and um, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, I th- the phrase never forget. That's one, yeah. definitely. That's one. That's one slogan for sure. But I think even the imagery of eagles and 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 the trumpets playing taps and um, and the way that we we revel in 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 the warmongering, even though we think it's everything we do is just um, that that section, the su- section of that poem that's in italics too. I think I tried I tried to capture the woman that I was blessed enough to interview for this for this project and her attitude towards um, the US and her and her life growing up as a as a Korean American um, adoptee to white parents in New Jersey um, and then her having her own son and, and dealing with um, a multiplication of these of these of these issues of identity and, and think about what she wanted her son to inherit um, and so it's an italics in that I think is a lot more ferocious, um, a lot more fury than my section. And I'm, I'm thinking, every time I read that poem, I think on, on some like out-of-body level of like how as I've gotten older, now that I have a son, I used to think that she and I were very different in that poem. I'm starting to, and I'm now, as I get older, like learning that I, I, I know where she's coming from. I know what she, I know what she was going through and wrestling with and grappling with, and I'm so um, I feel like so grateful that I had that chance to write that poem and to have that conversation because I'm like I'm seeing a different version of myself, even though I didn't know it was me at that moment, and that's something to laugh at. I think when you write a poems, I mean there is something so absurd about trying to translate these. And to resurrect these moments that are the instant you remember them, they're already dead, they're already gone. But language is trying to preserve something. That's such a that's such a you have to, you have to laugh at that. You know, like saving saving bodies and reliquaries after the person has 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 left the form. Like what a what a ludicrous thing to do, and yet it gives us comfort. If there's any humor in that, it's sort of a Kurt Vonnegut sort of laughing at like these conventions and traditions and. Um, rituals that we come up with to make ourselves feel better about the fact that we're all gonna die. Yeah. <laughs> sort of. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah and, and one more thing, I was just saying earlier about like reading and, and hearing laughter. There is uh, there's a poem called Fish Heads that I wrote um, that is on its surface a, a kind of ode to my mom's cooking. Um, but there's a there's a great sadness in it too because, as any teenager and adolescent does, you as you grow up you're sort of like, oh, my mom is so lame or this this, <laughs> this Filipino food is so gross why can't you just give me 
pizza like any real American, or please give me bologna sandwiches for lunch instead of, you know, spring rolls and, 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 and noodles and stuff and, and fish heads and fish head soup or something. Um, and so this poem is, is to me, it's, it's, a, it's a celebration of her, of her, of her life and um, all, the, all the things that she's brought from home, home meaning the Philippines, to the U.S., and um, in the, the last two lines, um, my mom says to me, or the speaker, whatever you want to, if you want to play that game, um, you know, uh, in some former life, you and I were seabirds or vampires or wolves. And almost always that line, like people laugh at it. Out of all of the different things inside the poem that are kind of inventions, because you're you're remixing all these different other you know all these different encounters, that's the most um, capital T true part of the poem. She actually said that to me on the phone, wow. and um, the whole poem kind of grew in reverse from that. But that that line is like really, it's not funny to me. No, like it's not. But people laugh because it is such like a, a mom thing, to, and it, it can be all of these things at once, right? Like it's not like one or the other. Um, so there, there's always such an interesting experience I have when I hear when I hear laughter at that line because they're laughing at they're laughing at the 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 the, the, the surreal surreality, the surrealness of the images linked together, kind of the non sequiturs. Um, and I think they're laughing at maybe the pauses because I have this habit of pausing between each of the things in that serial list. And it gets, it doesn't really intensify. It somehow is like real bird, vampire, you know, horror movie, then like wolves or, I don't know, there's something about the list that makes people laugh. Yeah. Um, but to me, it, it's always tinged with a kind of melancholy too. Like there's, a, there's something about mortality, something about... Um, a mom, a mother, kind of understanding that her son is like her at the same time that he spends most of his teenage life, as we all do, kind of rejecting the things we're supposed to do or yeah. rolling our eyes at the things they want us to do. So that I think, I feel like all my poems are, are, are sad. They're all, they're all elegies, but they're also but there's like... there's light you can see coming through. I would hope so. I mean, yeah. yeah, like I don't think they're all just like morbid emo, no. like I'm sitting alone in the dark, like... Yeah, yeah, but that's what yeah, I think it, yeah, I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I, I didn't bring my copy. I should have brought a copy. Here. Yeah. Okay. I have such a visceral reaction to this poem. Me too. Me too. I really do. Um, my friend Janine Joseph, who um, I was lucky enough to go to school with and who I still keep in touch with and work on um, various projects with and um, she, when we met in grad school, she, you know, this question of like, who are you reading now? Or who, who do you always read? She said Jack Gilbert. And because I was so 
ignorant. I had no idea who that was either. Um, and uh, I had started reading his work and I was just devastated by it. Um, when his collected came out, it's like this thick. Yeah, it's a, it's a tome. I'm sure that you could probably have it. Yeah, it's like it's this. It's this thick, and um, there's a kind of mysticism to the poems. There's there's like uh, I feel that they teach me so much about narrative and like telling a story. That the the breath of a line, and by breath I mean both um, air in the lungs, but also sort of oceanic mm. width or depth. Um, but yeah, so and yeah, so this this poem has that kind of effect on me. But as we were talking on email, I think as the years have gone on, and maybe the more and more I've thought a great deal about um, how different cultures view other cultures, or how other cultures uh, use other cultures or appropriate them um, for their own um, needs, whether that's conscious or unconscious. Um, the poem has changed a bit. It's sort of mutated. Like I'm, I'm trying to hold all those different kind of experiences with the poem together at once, like simultaneously. Mm. You want me to read it? That would be great. Uh, a brief for the defense. It's Jack Gilbert. Sorrow everywhere. Slaughter everywhere. If babies are not starving someplace, they are starving somewhere else, with flies in their nostrils. But we enjoy our lives because that's what God wants. Otherwise, the mornings before summer dawn would not be made so fine. The Bengal tiger would not be fashioned so miraculously well. The poor women at the fountain are laughing together between the suffering they have known and the awfulness in their future, smiling and laughing while somebody in the village is very sick. There is laughter every day in the terrible streets of Calcutta and the women laugh in the cages of Bombay. If we deny our happiness, resist our satisfaction, we lessen the importance of their deprivation. We must risk delight. We can do without pleasure, but not delight, not enjoyment. We must have the stubbornness to accept our gladness in the ruthless furnace of this world. To make injustice the only measure of our attention is to praise the devil. If the locomotive of the Lord runs us down, we should give thanks that the end had magnitude. We must admit there will be music despite everything. We stand at the prow again of a small ship, anchored late at night in the tiny port looking over to the sleeping island. The waterfront is three shuttered cafes and one naked light burning. To hear the faint sound of oars in the silence as a rowboat comes slowly out and then goes back is truly worth all the years of sorrow that are to come. So I think it's... There's a lot. So I think to me, part of what that poem is... Part of what Jack, Jack Gilbert's work the education of his work, I think, is the way in which um, a poem can assert itself against the tide of what you, th how you think the world works. It kind of unsettles um, what you've what you've been led to believe or been taught about 
big things, grand things in the universe, and to do them in a way that feels um, unmade. As I said before, like I think I care so much about um, the inner mechanics, the on the molecular level of like what my poems are doing, whether that's rhyme or syllable counts or where or to break a line or or how a poem sounds in the the crescendo and decrescendo, like all these all these the minutia of the poem. I get so caught up in that. I get I get so into that. I think when I read Jack Gilbert's poems, Jack Gilbert and Sharon Olds, and uh, in some ways Yusuf Kumanyaka, Galway Kennell, Philip Levine, these poets that tell us things, um, reflect on the world from a, a place of, 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 it feels like a kind of tentative wisdom. Like they know, but they also don't know. But a poem like this, I think, in the other way, I sort of, even reading it now, like, it's so sure of itself. It is very sure of itself. <laughs> it's very sure of itself, and it's, it's kind of at the lectern or at a pulpit in, in the way that, you know, um, a preacher is telling you a sermon that just sounds so beautiful, and you're, you're there lost in the world of, of this scripture lighting and... and, and um, Flare of, of, of the uh, of, of the cadence, and, and then you walk out of church and you're on the bus and you're like, wait, what did he say? <laughs> right. And I think that's the experience I have with, with this particular poem. It, it came to me. I said Janine had, had um, uh, the Great Fires is is one collection, and then um, Monolithos is the other. Uh, these two big collections in my head, and. Um, she had told me to read these poems, and I did, and I love them. And um, when my grandfather passed away, I was at um, Kundiman, which is uh, sort of a gathering for Asian American poets um, in support of, of new work. And um, it's a family, it's a really a family of us. Um, and I found out he had passed away, I think, in, in it was the summer, something like August. And that night was. I think it was maybe the the penultimate night of, of the of the the retreat. It's usually like a three or four days, and usually we have like a gathering where everyone reads one of their own poems. It's dinner. We have, it's like sort of you have a dinner with everyone, all the different fellows and the faculty, and you read a poem, and then the next fellow reads a poem, and it's this beautiful thing. I would found out from my my brother earlier that morning that my grandfather passed away in the Philippines, and. I was so shook by it. It wasn't a surprise, but I was so shook by it because my grandfather was the, my grandfather and grandmother were like the patriarchs of our family and, and they were kind of, they were, are legendary in, in um, the village that my father came from. I had just like this profound respect for everything that they ever stood for. And he was all of a sudden gone. Um, and so that night I, at dinner I read that poem wow. and uh, it was the only poem I could think about like when I you know all day I, I went to the chapel and I prayed um, lit a couple of candles walked around in the days to workshops and whatever else I did and that night 
surrounded by my friends and, and my, my family of, of, of writers. That was the poem that I read. And so it has a, this other, has that, has that place in my heart too. Yeah. But then it has this also place of just like, he, 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 he looks down his nose you know, at, at these places in, in India um, and he sets them up as, as uh, I don't know, like the, the contrast to, to, to joy. You know, uh, like the default contrast to, I don't know, this privileged life of just writing poems in, in, in the hills of, of, of the Greek islands or something, you know, which, which he did. And uh, I think I always knew that was there, but as, as time has gone on, I'm like, That's a, what a fucked thing to do for your poem is to, is to kind of, you know, at, to to press off against an entire, uh, against these these people who are living their lives to make, to make your your rhetorical claim about how to how to survive suffering. Mm. Completely yeah, fucked. Yeah, Completely I, fucked. The, the thing that makes me most uncomfortable about it, I suppose, is that it's so. It's not about the the speaker Jack Gilbert's suffering. It's about him withstanding news of suffering that comes from elsewhere. Mm. Not to say that that's not a place that I haven't been in many, many times. Right. And I do understand very much right. that overall outlook. But, um, yeah. It's I a kind of tourism in it. <laughs> it's a kind of tourism in suffering, right? And I, 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 and I go back to, I don't think I've ever phrased it this way, but I'm thinking about it, the title of the, of the poem, which is a brief for the defense. So he, so he knows that in that kind of um, law and order way, he he's he he imagines himself. He imagines the, the speaker imagines himself as 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 offering up some kind of rhetorical flourish to 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 to, to make this final argument against against what the prosecution says. Which right? is the world is doomed and everything is terrible. Right, and so he's so the thing that is troubling to me to kind of reiterate what you were saying in some ways. Like he makes his case on. Based on the suffering of other people, not his, not his own exactly, and and then it becomes this larger, this larger, but kind of also smaller sense of like what we do. I think he he gets away with it, or he almost gets away with it, just because the lines, the, the turns of phrases in them are so affirming. Like if the locomotive of the Lord strikes you down, then thankful for like oh my god yes I, that that in a, in a time of great sadness and grief that's what i turn to you know that that we we endure this suffering because we must also value this other thing that there's this that this opposing force is also present and that we should somehow savor that celebrate it revel in it and yeah i i think i can i can believe that but I can, I, I'm also, yeah, this is, this is a poem where I'm also like, but there's also something deeply skewed about how the poem is made, I think, um, or how the argument is made in the poem. And, um, I don't know, I think I, I struggle to reconcile that. Or it's an example of a piece of art or work of art where 
um, I was thinking about this word prismatic in class today. Like it's it's a it's an example of a, a poem that can be it's really prismatic to me. Like at certain times, I can see that that the magnificence of that one beam of, of light, and then I can see other times where like I look at it and certain lines will refract and break it up, and, and I can see just all the I don't know the kind of the violence of, of, of the poem. And the, it has to be the Bengal tiger. Like it has. To <laughs> No, but I think this is really exciting, this um, way of looking at a problematic work without writing it off. Mm. I think I'm, like you, I'm not going to uh, say, oh, I'm never reading Jack Gilbert, I hate that poem. Like, I just can't, can't get myself right. around to that, but can still see all the problems there. So I think it's, it remains unreconciled, and yeah. that's, that's exciting. Yeah, I think, too, that there is... Um, this 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 notion of, of problematic works of art and also problematic artists yeah. is something that each of us does. Um, each of us addresses or approaches the reality of that um, on our own terms in our own way. You know, like think about the f you know, what are the works of art that you can do without because you don't want to support the fucked up person who made it yeah. and that your life can still go on without seeing that classic or that great work of art you have not you have, you are not saying no one else can look at it but you yourself are asserting the freedom that you have to be like no I'm not going to watch that movie that person is a vile human being um, it's it's on on paper it's in legal record and 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 in testimony completely and <laughs> I will move on. I can, I can live my life without watching that film, listen, so listening to the album. To listen, yeah, there are so many more. And I think this is yeah. this particular poem, I think maybe even Jack Gilbert himself and, and the biography, for instance, of, of, of him. Like, it, He's someone who I can't exactly do that with. There are other people I can. Um, um, and the case can be made for, for Gilbert, sure. But for, at least for this poem, there's so much... Uh, that this is attached to it, in, in me. Um, I think about that video that, that you're, you're speaking about and, and the question that happened that Rachel asked afterward. I don't remember the question exactly or how, like, but I do remember responding in a way that, that, set, that pointed to the way in which the, the poem um, the poem somehow offered me some way of thinking about responsibility um, that we have to, to pay attention to suffering. And I think I still believe that. I think I still believe that even as I can say to you in these same breaths that like the way, the kinds of suffering that he uses are, are, are really fraught and kind of rolled my eyes at them and I kind of am sad for him that he had to just do those were his examples yeah. these cages and these you know this, this sort of dehumanization that happens over there while over here we're, we're <laughs> we, we can we can we can make it through and understand that life is these are these three lights we can live on with these three lights in, in the harbor um, yeah I, I, 
I'm trying to hold those things together in my mind, yeah. as contradictory as they are. Yeah, I think it's good. I think contradiction is always good. Yeah, I just wanted to ask you as a final question about life outside poetry. Mm. And something that we chatted about on email was um, spending time gaming. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, and I think that's really something that, that poets don't often talk about is what else they do. Mm. And particularly um, in the last couple of years, I've been trying to get myself to understand that blank space and not working huh. is just as important as working. Mm. Um, not to say that I work hard on poems, I work hard on a bunch of other procrastinating things. <laughs> right, um, right. But yeah, I, I'm interested in particularly in gaming because it's something that gets so maligned as, oh, it's the ultimate time waster. Um, yeah, but yeah. Th- 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 there are a couple of things that pop in mind. Like, Poetry is a time waster too. Like, what the <laughs> f- is this Good ever going to accomplish? This whole thing is—it's uh, all Ozymandias all over again. It's just like you know, look at look at my great works, ye mighty in despair, and it's just two legs in the desert. Like, ultimately, <laughs> all of us are going to get wiped out and forgotten. <laughs> ultimately, and so it's like it's all how we make. This is not me. This is Kurt Vonnegut. The novel is Kurt Vonnegut, but. If you if you care about writing, you're you're making scratches and little ink blotches on pieces of of hammered out tree pulp, wood pulp. Like how ridiculous is that? Yeah, we forget that pretty You regularly, you right? spend your whole life, and like at the same time as 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 um, as lunatic as that is, it's also so vital. It's kind of all one of the things that we have, right? So this thing where people put one form of art against another in this battle royale to me is is um it's not productive you know like and we have all our we all have our inclinations we all have our affinities and and we favor certain things but there's room enough for every one of us fools to to create a ruckus in our own way so i think like video games are an escape in, in the different kind of way that poems are an escape for me, a different way that teaching, which is, I mean, might be defined as work, is also an escape in some way. And, um, it's, it, they're all kinds of performance. Um, and I think paying attention to um, what, I would, what is, has been termed ludology, the study of games or the study of play, um, in the past couple of years for me, like reading books on, on video game theory and art and design theory has done so much for how I think about um, how, to, how I put my book together, how I put my, manus- my thesis, my manuscript together. Um, it's done so much for me to think about pacing and, and, and space, storytelling. Um, it's taught me about Things like race and hearing hearing twelve year olds malign each other with with racial slurs online. That's another level of if you play online and have headphones on and hear over Xbox Live like ten year olds calling each other terrible, just dehumanizing things. And, is, this and, in, is this in Star Wars Battlefront? No, no, this is oh, older. Okay. This is more Call of Duty, okay. which is so even I was worse. Hoping that maybe Star Wars was the same <laughs> from that. Oh well, there. Yeah, well, it's a, it's it's a different medium in that, uh, and this is another level of things. Like I, I played, um, I played and was I must admit quite good at at, at first person military shooters like yeah. Call of Duty. Yeah, but I have no support for that in real life. Like drone warfare, 
and 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 yet I, there were these moments where I I real I had to step back and realize like, I'm enjoying this thing and and I have the ability to separate and and to hold these mo- things multiple, I would hope, but but there are people who can't and so the depiction of 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 brown and black bodies being shot by white soldiers underneath the the fanfare of eagles and bugles and smoke is 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 part of the very fiber of those games mm. i mean even if they're not propaganda they're propaganda mm. you know they're they're basically re- recruitment tools even no matter how much they try not to your first person your skin is white, you're holding these American guns in your hand, and you are in some unnamed Middle East country, it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, <laughs> because there, there, there is, there is Arabic on the walls, the, the villain is, 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 is a certain skin color, is saying certain things, is, is parroting back these tropes. Yeah. And so, I would play Call of Duty, for instance, when I was really into it, and I would, um, and I would play with my, um, you know, we we you know most people have like a, a poker night, like friends have poker nights. So like me and um, my brother and some other, who his his uh, girlfriend back then. We would all meet online and we would play together for hours, and it would it would it would just be it would just be gaming. Yeah. But I I could also step back and I I have started and stopped maybe ten or twelve essays. I've never finished them because it's such a complicated thing for me to step back and be like. My God, I'm 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 the son of immigrants. I watched my, um, you know, the, these these characters go to Korea, they go to Asia, and they and they and they reenact the Vietnam War. And your character that you play is 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 killing people who look like you. And then um, I think about like. Um, Young people playing those games, like what it affirms, what it what it calcifies in your sense of like what it means to be American, and uh, the hero worship of, of, of you know the symbol of like World War Two and on and on. And I would I would start these essays, like trying to find some way to understand how how you can understand uh, cope with the just how twisted that is, you know, and the fact that I would when I would go to the ballot box or think about who I was going to vote for I, I, I didn't want that president I'm so disappointed in, in the president for for supporting these policies that 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 uh, advocate for or allow for or empower torture or um, uh, chemical warfare or drone warfare or the uh, occupation of countries these are things I am in my real life against yeah. and yet Five days a week, I would meet up with my friends, and we would laugh at doing it virtually. That's mm. twisted, absolutely. I don't know if it's. I mean, maybe it's twisted, but maybe it is just about just the real capacity of human beings to separate play from reality. Like, I think yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, th- that's definitely part of it. But I think there's. You can say that one. I I I could. I have in the past resigned myself to that, or I've, I've, I've rationalized it that way, but I think there's also something deeply um, troubling about it at the same time, that I'm, I'm participating in, and supporting with, with, by buying these games, right, supporting the development of, of 
of those those kinds of things as play anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Like, these are, you, you can look at the marketing for it, you can look at the, the copy on the back of the game and the reviews, and these are the kinds of things that, to see them only as a game um, is to forget that those images of war are the things that would make a young woman or a young man think that they could handle going to these countries and 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 doing those things because they're good at the game. They could be good at it in real life, whatever the word "good" might mean, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, there's no way of knowing the effect um, that the sort of the the avalanche of these images and these terms and 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 have on on any of us. Yeah. There, I mean, I guess there is a way of knowing, but yeah. So I think gaming, escaping, but also recognizing the ramifications or implications, I, I think that shows up in some way in, in the poems. It helps me, it helps, even though I don't, I don't write directly to it or about it, I think it's, I think it's still there haunting. Um, I've, I've st since stopped playing Call of Duty. Uh, yeah. I, yeah, but, yeah, I, I think, I think, it, that that was and, and is something that still kind of haunts me in, in a way. Just the the the, the celerity and, and the ease with which you can slide from be being terrified that this is all happening, and then in some it's small, minuscule, um, perhaps, but being complicit in those in that in that vocabulary, that visual vocabulary of of soldiers on the ground doing these things to these people and even the storylines you know torturing people for information and then you know, pressing a button to torture them to get the information you need to get to the next level and then and all, and all. That, yeah. that's there that's there I think the games that I'm that I've been playing now are more cartoony in the yeah. sense that like you know let's with Star Wars like there is no um, you play online against other people but there's no voice chat the way the Call of Duty used to be right. so you're I don't I never speak to these people um, I think that the, the the universe of Star Wars for instance it, it's it's war but it's kind of a, a neon and uh, science fictiony yeah. it's kind of there's a, there's a whole fictive universe that's of course has its its roots in the our anxieties too but it's 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 distant um, in a game like journey which we talked about uh, I think over email is it's a lyric game. So you know, there are no words. There's no language to it. Um, it's an experience that flies in the face of the high octane kinetic uh, shoot and chain together combos of punches. It's 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 symphonic. It is symphonic. And it's ph yeah. philosophical. And so it's a it's a different kind of poem. It's a different kind of monster mm -hmm. than the other other kind of gaming monsters. And that that's. Um, you know, I, I played that just just maybe a month ago, and I did it in one sitting. You know, my son had fallen asleep, um, and he was sleeping through the night then. Uh, and my wife had fallen asleep as well, and I had I put my noise canceling headphones on, and I just played it in one straight shot, and it's it's really quite beautiful. Um, and as I said before, I think playing a game like that teaches me a lot about design. Because when you think about a poem, 
a poem is when I think about a poem, a poem is a designed thing. It's an engineered, it's an engineered thing. Um, it's a made thing. It's a constructed thing. As much as it, as much as it evokes a universe, it's also built of words and punctuation and conventions and traditions. Where do you, where do you, how many spaces after a period, and, and do you capitalize the first letter, and, and on and on and on. Um, I remember reading this essay about level design in Mario Brothers and how, yeah, the, f the first level of Mario Brothers, there are, um, what makes Mario Brothers different than games today, there are, no, there are no words besides like the numbers of the points you score. And because games are so complicated, you've got all 40 buttons on a controller now as opposed to, you know, the four cardinal directions and then two buttons and then two start and select. That's and why I'm still playing. I couldn't keep up with the consoles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so in Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers, the first one, uh, you know, it's level 1-1, one, one, and you start on the left-hand side of the screen with little pixel Mario, and you run to the right and jump on a flag, and you've got all these obstacles. Um, that first level is, in, in its economy, and in its expansiveness, and in its iterative... Um, Flexibility, which is to say, like every level from that point on, is based upon that first one, right? It teaches you everything you need to know, all the different variations where you add fire and plants and water and, and snow, it, but all of it is rooted in level one one, and it teaches you everything you need to know. I, I feel like looking, at, reading essays about that, uh, about that that level design, and, and thinking about level design of games like like Journey or uh, role-playing games or uh, like Mass Effect, um, uh, Red Dead Redemption, these uh, immersive like open world games. I think about like how they're designed. Taught me a lot about how to, how to design a book. Yeah. I, I, I don't mean like fonts or typefaces or, or like, I'm thinking about like what poem comes first? What's so, what does that first poem teach you about how to read every other poem? If you decide to read the poem, all it, all the poems in, in the yeah, order presented. Which I, which I think a lot of people do. Yeah. Um, yeah so I think like that was that was reading those essays about video games was so. Yeah, it, it I feel like it was one of those epiphany epiphany epiphanic bursts. You know that it's like, oh wow, these games I'm playing like they're all so. There are rhymes in the way I think about poems. I think Reliquaria is really indebted to level one one of Mario in that way. I, I always, I always thought about um, because the poems are. I think my poems are very different from each other, um, in in form and in content matter, content, subject, um, and I always try to figure out a way that I could create a framework to help people understand they're all by the same person. Uh, and so I had three sections and I always, I, I thought about having one poem that was like level one, one. And no matter how weird or, or, or um, I don't know, how weird or strange or dense uh, the poems got or how many, how many, esoteric words they would use that if you could just come back to that like key yeah it's like the key the time signature yeah. you, yeah. you would have some insight into the rest and, and so a lot of the different versions of, of the book were playing with what poem came first 
And once Sacrum fell into that spot, it it changed everything that followed. So I think video games for me have not only just been a place to, to run through when I needed to, to vent and punch something virtually or uh, or to prove myself against someone else's high score, but in, in weird ways they... they they, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm under the influence of them, always. Yeah. 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 I think what's like an ETU is there. Yeah, and, and like the terminology is always there. Like yes. I think about, yeah. um, I had a Sega Genesis, and one of the things that it touted was always, it's a, the processor's ability to have parallax scrolling, oh, yes. which is just the way in which, let's say, Sonic the Hedgehog goes really, really fast, and then the world behind him moves at a different pace, so it looks like he's going faster than he is. <laughs> And so that simultaneity, uh, that was one of the, the um, innovations of that particular console. And I think about the way in which poems can have that kind of parallax feel. And that might be a word to use with, or sing with Gilbert, is like you have this kind of parallax scrolling. Like you're all at once like, God, this poem is so beautiful, it's devastating. Fuck this guy. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like and, and, and it, it can happen that way. They, they can kind of swirl. And, and, and move, and it's one of the special effects of how poems work on us. Yeah, I love that. It's fantastic. The other question I had, uh, it's a little bit related to um, the gaming thing, but I think, sure. I think you were chatting a little bit about this um, before, just after the reading, in terms of having a, a time when you weren't writing, mm. and then something recently, it seems, has sparked you to write again, and I'm interested in what blocks you and what's, what kicks you into gear again? Well, the thing I've experienced since moving to London is I'm, I'm very conscious of the courses that I'm teaching and uh, the, the materials and, and the, the talk and the discussions that are happening. They're all, all, almost all of them are in some way, they're, they're all siblings in this idea of um, I don't want to conduct workshops anymore. I don't want to have this thing where we have drafts that we exchange and you tell me where to move my stanzas and then if I do what you say then the poem is finished or better or better yeah. right right I think that the impulse of the workshop the, the IO model of the workshop is, is one that's the spirit of it is, is one of, of, of generosity or, or can be ideally of like here's my perspective which is undoubtedly different than yours and I'm going to show you something that you didn't see or know about it and then if you can um, consider that then maybe the next version of, of what you've made is going to be radically subtly different than what you started out with and that's that's the that's the gift that we that we give each other um, but I think the model is also larded with a lot of preconceived notions about what makes a poem good or better uh, whose whose language is better than someone else's? Whose um, life experience is more valid than someone else's? Or it, I think it also presupposes what the normal or real reader is. Uh, what the normal reader is. If you have a, a a language in your poem that is not English, and I don't understand English, you're supposed to translate that for me, right? Because then you've 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 um, you've kept me out of your poem. And. I think the workshop model suggests that you should let me in, and I'm, I'm the, the poems that I'm reading that are, are the books, the poems, the things that I'm watching that 
that um, that complicate that thought for me. I'm so they feel so vital to me. They're kind of like, no, I don't have to. Tr- if I don't want to translate this, if this poem doesn't ask need me to translate, I'm going to keep it in Tagalog or Spanish or Farsi because the poem doesn't know you. You know, it, the, this poem is its thing, and you are you. And how do you meet each other as opposed to how does the poem satisfy this vision of what a normal reader is or the universal reader, hmm. right? So I've been teaching these courses that are about trying to subvert that or question that model and just to generate over and over and over again um, by way of many different kinds of, of, of catalysts or um, obstacles or generative things. Anyway, I, I've, I've so enjoyed these experiences, but I never take my own fucking advice. I, I, never, I never do my own exercises. Who does? Who does, right? <laughs> like, I, I, I don't think, I, I think I do, but not consciously. Like, I don't sit down and, and do this thing. And I, I don't, I haven't taken anyone else's um, versions of, of that kind of, of experience. I haven't been the, the writer in at the table as opposed to the person leading it. Yeah. So, um, so what I'm always aware of is, as much as I love watching other people be in the, the, the crucible of like making, uh, where they're in, they're in the trenches, and all these war images, or, chem, or lab images. Anyway, um, I don't do it myself, although I feel like I, uh, I, would love to, I would love to be in my own class sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that's one reason that I, 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 I mean, I think it's one reason why that what you overheard me talking about this, this new draft of something, it came about because it, it, the particular project of visual verse, this, this uh, online literary magazine is one painting every month and uh, you have an hour or you're supposed to have an hour to create something and you, su- you, you submit it. Oh, and really Yeah, so it seemed to me two weeks ago when they first emailed me like, oh, this sounds like one of my, like, my weird, uh, my sort of bizarre kind of obstacle-ridden tests or something. I'm like, okay, I'll sign up for it. And I kept putting it off and putting it off and putting it off, um, procrastinating or forgetting about it until the day it was due, which was last Friday. Um, they needed it by, like, noon. And uh, the night before, my son didn't sleep well, which means we didn't sleep well. And I got up at, I was going to get up at 6 and, 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 and do my poem in my hour. I got up at like 9.30. And I, I, I realized that there was. There was the, the, the pressure cooker that I've often invited my own students into. You know, this, this um, looming time constraint. And I just, I just got to work for an hour, hour, 15 minutes, and I came up with something, you know? And it was, it, it, and, and it's, it's an act of, of intellectual empathy, right? You, I, I, I realize, like, I know theoretically what my students are going through. I love watching it happen. And I'm happy that I'm witness to it and um, leading it, um, is leading us into the fray. But 
it's very different when you do it yourself. You know, it is really difficult. I mean, I know it's difficult, but I now I, I know it is. Really yeah, and 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 the and the poem isn't finished. I mean, it's it. it as, I thought I was not going to write a sonnet. It ended up being a sonnet. So, it's thirteen lines, thirteen lines and two words, uh, thirteen eight-syllable lines. So it's like six syllables off from being done. And I'm the last like. Not really octave. The last six, the last sestet is a little bit shaky to me still, and I was hesitating. I was like, I was going to write them, like I can't do it, you know, that Friday, but I was humbled and um, it was so instructive. To just be like, no, publish, publish, put this thing online. It's not done. It's not. And I wrote something. I mean, that's it. I, I wrote it, and that was after months and months of not writing. It, I mean. Like, what I do is, I have this notebook that, um, it's a date book, so if there are, I put everything in here, like lesson plans and business cards from other people, so you can see the, the days where I don't write. Hey, this is cool. I and like this. That's a, I, I mean, I, I can see the days, so from January 4, oh, see, all the way to like 18, nothing, and then there's a burst again, and then it quiets down again. And this is what I've been doing for the past, I, th I want to say, seven years. Like, so there are all these black notebooks all around my house, all around my apartment here, and all around um, there are boxes now in Brooklyn. Um, but I've I've come to grips with that. Like, I think that's just my process. There are moments where I'm 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 busy. My mind is racing, and there are other times where it's it's just I write. I took a train from Liverpool to London, and that was what happened that day. Yeah. And I have the memory up here, and it's not on the page. Yeah. And something will come of that. And there's a list in the back of of uh, like words that I'm I'm going to use one day. Most of them are from reviews of other people's books. So I think they're they're particularly um, evocative and hardworking verbs: drape, erode provoke, contour, nullify. They, these will never appear in a poem, and I just <laughs> like having them around somehow. Fractal, it's not a verb, but stabilize, unsettle, renewal. And this is something. That's a kind of writing. I think we also get, you know, you were talking earlier about um, the way in which there's a, a kind of prevailing narrative about how one becomes a writer. Mm -hmm. There's also a prevailing narrative about how one writes and stays a writer. Yeah, and stays and, a writer. The poem every day. The you know, if you're not writing, you're not a writer. Mm. All these really um, these myths that completely rob us of our permission to just not be productive. Right. I was right. talking to someone earlier this morning who hasn't written for quite a number of years for mm. very good reasons, and she feels like she's on the back foot. And I was just saying to her over and over again, like you can start any time. There's no rules. You know, it's not about and that's a, up. that's exacerbated by things like Twitter and Facebook, oh, where it gorgeous. feels like, or it feels like, everyone that you admire and love is doing a trillion things better than you and getting the well-deserved accolades for it. And what the hell am I doing here, playing Star Wars still? Like, shouldn't I be applying for a grant? And the answer is, of course, yes. I'm pretty I, sure we're always meant to be applying. For something. <laughs> I should, I should be. Like, if I, I, I should be applying for a grant. I should be applying for a scholarship. I should be doing those things. Um, but at also, the same time, it's marks on paper. 
It's also, and also, like, I really want to blow up the Death Star tonight. Like, I really <laughs> want to do that. I really, <laughs> I really want to just be chosen to, to get into the trench and blow up the Death Star. And I haven't yet, although I've been witness to it. And, <laughs> and so the, the deadline for that other thing passes me by, and, um, which sometimes sucks. Sometimes I'm okay with it. Um, I think my relationship with, with like Twitter, for instance, is, is, is I think it's, it's, um, it's threaded into our conversation, too, of, of like what it means to be a writer, what it means to be writing, um, because you have this feed of, of, sometimes it's the feed is mourning, sometimes the feed is grieving, sometimes the feed is celebratory. Um, the mood of, of all these people who I've met in real life, and many of them I haven't met ever, beyond just correspondence um, is is talking about someone winning uh, a prize that I wish I had submitted for and, and on and on and on and on I think with Twitter like it's very easy to get to, to it's it's difficult to inoculate yourself against um, imposter syndrome mm. or feeling like a fraud or feeling like you're on the back foot as you said um, and it, it takes a lot to to, to, to try to to, res, to resist that 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 dread and anxiety and just to to to, to feel like you that one that I that you know at this point in your life after doing these things that you know your pace your rhythm you know what you need you're willing to have those moments where you sh- where you get shook and you have to write a poem in, in an hour and a half and you, and you kind of do it and you move on and um, but it takes that, that takes work as, as all things that matter do it's, yeah. it's very easy to fall into just like oh wow yeah you yeah you there you go that's yet another that's one more accolade that I didn't get yeah. I guess I should just give up now yeah I guess you should just <laughs> give up but as you say it's your it would be so strange if there was some, like, like a Mario level, like a certain <laughs> number of things that we could do, and then ca- capture the flag. We're a poet now. That would be so. Yeah, weird. I, I think yeah. there is there is a sense that there. I mean, there isn't. There isn't, right? Of course, like you know, you get a degree and you get a certain kind of blurb on your on your manuscript, and then that gets you higher. So. Th- there, there is, there is that. Yeah. I think the isn't part is how you come to grips when when you start to make those choices for yourself, like to ask for those those um, recommendations or something, or to, to start to decide, like, all right, I'm going to venture forth into submitting these poems to a literary magazine that is this is not the right phrase, like well above my station, you know, like like and the hierarchy of all literary magazines around the world. There's not a fucking chance in hell they're going to want my poems. I think my I think what I'm writing now might fit with their aesthetics. I'm gonna try like that's a choice that you make on your own terms when you feel like you're ready, as opposed to thinking, oh fuck, I guess I'm supposed to do that now. Mm-hmm. Everyone else has their poems in there. If I don't do this, then you know. And I think for some people, their 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 jobs, that's that's part of the pressure that exerts. If I don't have this many things in my tenure file, I'm not gonna get tenure. And so you start to there's a kind of external weight upon you. I suppose the isn't part is the are the moments where you are where you have a kind of freedom to either 
a freedom to do things when you decide that you're ready to do them as opposed to feeling like you're on some kind of, you're on the rails or off the rails, on track or off the track. Mm -hmm.